Welcome to the Blind Spot Podcast. Excited to be here as always with my co-host and business partner, Dr. Greg Sidamon. Super excited about today's episode. We're going to talk to a guy which you may not know by name, but you're going to know his client base. Some of the clients that he represents, Michael Cohen, Hillary Clinton, uh, I mean, Alex Rodriguez, some big names. And Dr. Greg, you're going to geek out. I think you're going to love this guy. I mean, his, his story is amazing how he overcomes people's blind spots. And we asked him about his own blind spots. And, you know, I have clients blind spotted him. So Greg, I don't know, but I mean, I think you're gonna, you're gonna get psyched. You're gonna get psyched on this one. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, maybe I shouldn't re reveal this, but I kind of don't want to like him. <laughs> and then I kind of want to like him. Right. And, and that, you know, I think I'm, I'm gonna learn. And part of what I, I really want people to take away from this with blind spot is if I, if I kind of come into this thinking, I'm not sure I want to like this guy because of the people that he represents, and, and the fixer that he is, I want to keep an open mind about it. So I don't want to have my own blind spot about who this guy is as we move forward, Patrick. All right, let's get into the episode. Looking forward to it. Sometimes you see it coming. Sometimes you don't. I was called in the Friday before Christmas and I was told they were letting me go. My husband of 22 years came home the day after our daughter's graduation and told me he had only stayed all this time for the kids. Significant life changes can come fast and without warning. It's what you do next that matters. I mean, nothing changes your life more than a diagnosis like that. But eight years later in remission, and honestly, I'm having the best year of my entire career. And then I went home and I collapsed and I cried and I sobbed and I screamed and I wailed and I'm like, okay, I gotta find a job. Not a single door open. Until the day when it happens to you, you should always be asking yourself, what's in your blind spot? Featuring Patrick Lennon and Dr. Greg Sinema. Okay, well, let's get into the interview. Welcome, Lanny Davis. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Lanny, how are you? May, may I call you Greg or Dr. Greg, whatever you prefer? Yeah, only my wife has to call me Dr. Greg. You can call me Greg. <laughs> okay, and you can call me anything because I've heard, I've heard all the bad names and I'm used to any bad names. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, that's, that's part, partly why I was really looking forward to chatting with you um, because as a doctor of psychology, um, I find your story fascinating because, I, and I, I hope you take this the right way. Um, you, you to me are like a cross section of Ray Donovan and a psychologist and an attorney, and and your job is to fix people who find themselves in crisis. Is that is that fair? Well, it's got to be fair because my oldest daughter, who I raised as a single dad in her teen years called me excitedly one night and said, Dad, you're Ray Donovan. And actually, <laughs> since, I'm not, since I'm not cool, I said, who's Ray Donovan? So yeah, I, then I started to watch. I, I get that. I, I figure, well, I don't think you make people disappear. That's probably not your forte, um, <laughs> like Ray Donovan. But, but, you know, I think the way you make problems disappear um, and and help people who are in the worst moments of their life. And and I, I mean, while people may not recognize your name right off, they would 100% recognize your client list. I mean, like Martha Stewart and her insider trading thing. Um, Dan Snyder is an interesting case. Um, he, people don't know he's the owner of the Washington Football Club, Don't Call Me Redskins, um, that whole thing. Um, Bill Clinton who occasionally, and I use the term loosely, found himself in some sensitive situations, um, <laughs> the, right? These, these are people who, when the proverbial, you know what, hit the fan, they reach out to you. And I'm, I would just love to hear why. I'd love to hear how you found yourself 
in a situation in a profession where when we are at the most blindsided blind spot moment of our lives, the phone rings and like you've got a bat phone in your office and and you mobilize when people hit that that point. Why is that? Well, first, if you don't mind uh, a preliminary comment before I answer the why, which is a more difficult uh, answer. I got here because I decided to make a left turn when I got out of college in New Haven at Yale uh, instead of a right turn. If I'd made a right turn where I really wanted to go, I would have gone to the train station, headed for New York City, and done what I always wanted to do, which is write for the New York Times and be a reporter since I was editor-in-chief of the Yale Daily News, and that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But I was lost and I made a left turn. I'm making this up, of course. And I ended up at Yale Law School. And a couple of years at Yale Law School in my senior year, I met a brilliant, so dazzling in her brilliance, young woman, that after about 10 minutes of meeting her where she wanted to go find the legal services clinic before she had even registered for her first year at Yale Law School, And I said to this young woman who had graduated from Wellesley and become famous for her Wellesley graduation day speech, Miss Clinton, of course, it was Rodham at the time. So it was Miss Rodham. You don't need to go to a legal services clinic yet. You need to figure out Yale Law School before you do any volunteer work. And her response was, I came to Yale Law School because I wanted to do public service, not the other way around. And I thought to myself, she's going to be president someday. So that's how I got into the situation to answer your question. It was because of my longtime friendship with then Hillary Rodham, ultimately Hillary Clinton, that I received a phone call that she needed help in the White House defending her from this ridiculous to this day bogus scandal called Whitewater that nobody knows about, nor should anybody know about, because it was about nothing after $60 million of a prosecutor investigating, zero, nothing, no charges, nothing. But that's what got me to the White House to try to understand if you have bad stories being written about you, about anything, but business, politics, or life, which is the subtitle of my book, Crisis Tales, what to do if you're in a crisis in business, politics, or life. I learned each step of the way what to do by my experience in the White House working for the Clintons. Wow, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, that story of the Clintons in itself is is fascinating. And, and sort of kind of bringing you along with blind spot. And I want Patrick to to chime in on this because it was mm-hmm. his his idea. And, and as somebody who got, you know, literally and figuratively blindsided by health, you know, found himself in, in a lot of situations that we have no control of. And before I throw it over to Patrick, I just want to ask you, because I've got a, I've got a sense, again, kind of going back, it's a doctor of psychology, that the, challenge that the challenges that we face in life are often unforeseen, like Patrick's health challenges, and or maybe somebody loses a job, or they lose a loved one or something. These are things that are unforeseen. We don't have um, really much control over them. But other challenges, and this is where I think you come in, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts, um, are as a result of our blind spots. And these are situations and circumstances that maybe we ignored or we discounted them. We threw them away. They're not a problem. I'm not going to deal with this. And I call these sort of self-inflicted challenges. 
um, lying and cheating and stealing and greed and addictions, you know, cheating on our spouses in the Lincoln bedroom, not to throw Bill Clinton back into this or not. Um, but these are these are things that at least we had some control over. In the cases that you work with, these high-profile cases, do you find that that people saw this train coming and they stayed on the tracks anyway? How do you see that? It's a great question, but I do need to correct the record of something I know you didn't mean. You said cheating, and then you said Lincoln bedroom, and it sounded like there was cheating in the Lincoln bedroom, but I know what you meant. Um, for those not understanding the reference, the Lincoln bedroom was one of the controversies I handled at the White House where I learned the lesson of the subtitle of the memoir that I wrote, which is really the answer to your questions. I learned the lesson with the Lincoln bedroom where we had Mr. Clinton at, as president running for re-election had invited wealthy donors to stay overnight in the Lincoln bedroom as a way of encouraging them to support the campaign, support a euphemism for making donations. And that then became public that it looked like he was bribing people to give money to the campaign in order to stay overnight in the Lincoln bedroom. So when I got confronted by that story, just to give you a case study of how I learned how to do what you've asked me, I recognized there was no way to make this story look good, even though there may have been innocent motives that people are rewarded for being supporters, and lots of them, 90% of them, were friends and relatives who stayed overnight. But nevertheless, there was no way of escaping that we were rewarding big donors with a night in the White House. And it looked unseemly, but not illegal. So I had to decide, how do I handle this? Ultimately, we decided to find out what other presidents had done, which is called whataboutism. It doesn't justify the question of why did Mr. Clinton do it, but it does say he wasn't unusual. And once we found that President uh, Bush won and President Reagan especially, had held large events in the White House and people had stayed overnight in the upstairs residence and sometimes in the Lincoln bedroom. We at least had a context for Mr. Clinton's behavior, but ultimately we said there is nothing about fundraising practices in campaigns. And then I made my pivot. So that's why we need campaign finance reform, full transparency, public financing of elections, get rid of money. Democrats favor that, Republicans oppose it. So you can see what I just did as I do all the time. I look at what the facts are. I can't delete bad facts. I put the bad facts out myself. I don't wait for somebody else. And then I try to give a reasonable solution to the bad facts. Rather than denying them, evading them, prolonging them. I try to do it all at once, and then I end up with a solution. And your focus on what I do for clients is to solve their problems. Sometimes the only solution is to step up, fess up, say you're sorry, and give a solution as to what you're going to do going forward. And that's how I developed the mantra of my memoir as my strategy. Tell it early, tell it all, tell it yourself the truth. Yeah, along that line, why is it that we don't just fall on the sword? You know, again, maybe being trapped in the mind of a psychologist is sometimes the easiest path out of this is just to say, I made a huge mistake. Um, Correct. And, and the, the American people are very forgiving, right? Why do we why do we avoid just 
owning it. Correct. Uh, thank you. Come join my firm. You've just done my mantra. <laughs> tell it early, tell it all, tell it yourself. But here's the truth. It's not easy if you're the one who's hearing my advice. If it's about personal issues and spousal and other relationships, that's great advice to give. It's not so easy to take that advice. The other part of the advice that's hard for clients in the business arena is not to try to justify the mistake. I'm sorry, but let me, it's always a but, or the Washington definition of an apology is, I'm sorry if I offended you. Excuse me, that's not an apology. (laughs) That's not an apology. (laughs) Only Washington thinks that's an apology. I'm sorry, full stop. And not that's not enough. Here's what happened, and here's what I plan to do so it doesn't happen again. If it's corporate malfeasance, we need better compliance, overview, supervision, whatever it is. It's not enough to say, I'm sorry, full stop, no explanations, no if I's, I'm sorry, but that's not enough. What are you going to do about it so it doesn't happen again? Do you understand what you did and what are you going to do about it? That's my advice to clients. But again, it's easy to give that advice. It's not so easy to take that advice. I I wonder in your career, you took that left turn and I'm assuming you're happy you took the left turn versus be a writer. Well, I guess I have to be honest, not completely But vicariously, I have a very famous son who decided to be a journalist, didn't go to law school, even though he thought about it. His father told him, don't. And he's now, (laughs) he started at Sports Illustrated. He writes for The Athletic and he's on television during March Madness. His name is Seth Davis and he's on the panel with Charles Barkley and Greg Gumbel. And he's a journalist and he's also famous. So I'm now the father of Seth Davis rather than him being the son of Lanny. So you're living, you're living, that's fantastic. You got two lives. That's fantastic. Exactly. Vicariously. So, so Lenny, when, with all these cases that you worked on, have you ever personally been blindsided by a client? Yes. I mean, can you share anything about that? Yes. And it's one of the sore spots that I get hit with by what I would call cheap shot people who know what the facts are. If they don't know Mm -hmm. what the facts are, then I have to try to explain it to them. I was asked by a corrupt uh, government and a government that was a dictatorship called Equatorial Guinea, sitting on a sea of oil, I was told almost as much as Saudi Arabia, who came to me through a representative, I want to clean up my government, I want democracy, I want to be good with America values, please help me. And when I first met with this individual, I said, right now, your reputation is one of the most corrupt dictators in the world. I can't help you unless you publicly commit to reforming human rights, the rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. He said, yes, I will. And then I still needed some protection for representing this uh, type of government. So I got in contact with Archbishop Desmond Tutu probably the most important human rights and saintly living leader he's passed now in the world, of course, was involved with Nelson Mandela and the anti-apartheid movement. And, uh, and, And Archbishop Tutu said to me, we need you to get Equatorial Guinea right with all that oil, he can help Africa. So I took the assignment only with Archbishop Desmond Tutu's help. From that day forward, I am identified by people who want to take cheap shots at me and don't want to tell the story Mm -hmm. as representing 
bad people, including the corrupt dictator of Equatorial Guinea. And when I try to correct the record, the answer always is, well, you did represent the government of Equatorial Guinea, didn't you? And of course, the dilemma in any client situation I have is that a half-truth is a lie. You have to tell the full truth, or you can still be harming somebody's reputation. And my struggle with journalists is that argument about a client of mine. Well, we did state a fact about the client. Well, you didn't state all the facts about my client. And that's my struggle with journalists who sometimes have editors that don't want to publish the good facts, but only the bad facts. Understood. No, that's, 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 some, yeah, because when Greg and I were kind of prepping for this interview with you, we thought, gosh, you must have a, a plethora of blindsided stories yourself as clients typically. I mean, I know in our business, in the media business, they don't share everything often, and then you're surprised by them, but I would imagine your surprises are a lot more detrimental. Um, my, ch- well, my children and my family, by the way, thank you for saying that, always accuse me of that. Be quiet about Equatorial Guinea. You're so defensive. Why do you always have to raise it yourself? And of course, my habit strategically is to preempt bad stories by getting my facts out first. So I constantly use Equatorial Guinea as my example, because if you Google me, you will see stories about me representing a corrupt dictator without any reference to Archbishop Desmond Tutu or all that I did trying to help on human rights. And by the way, I I, I stopped representing the government about a year later. But anyway, you can see that there are sore spots in my type of profession where you represent people that are not necessarily good people and you're trying to make them good by getting them to tell the truth, step up and own up, as Greg said, and it's a difficult profession. But as the Godfather said, (laughs) this is the profession I chose. (laughs) So so along that line, if, if Donald Trump called and said, I need your services, would you? No. So that's a great question. I'm asked that question by people with good intentions. Sometimes I'm asked it by nasty people. Is there anybody you'd say no to is a different way of asking that question. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say yes to Adolf Hitler. I wouldn't say yes to Donald Trump. I say those two names. Uh, There is a, there is a big difference between Hitler and Trump, but there isn't as big a difference as you would think because of pathological sociopathology lying uh, and misinformation, dictators are autocrats are similar. So the answer is no. There are certain people that have a basic evil character value system that I cannot make better. So I would say no to and have said no to a number of people that I consider just uh, liars, would never accept my advice, and there's no way that I can make them better. So I say no. So that's so that's interesting because as a therapist. The the one type, well, there are three types of people I would never work with. Uh, megalomaniacs, narcissists, and grandiosity disorders. Um, because Yes. And he is, a, excuse me, you know the expression malignant narcissism. Yes. Uh, when I wrote my book about Trump, I knew he was a narcissist, but then I found the expression malignant narcissism as a disorder. And he fits it to a T. Yeah, it is a disorder. And it's probably the one I would say is impossible to correct. Um, I don't know a therapy or a medication that defeats uh, that type of narcissism. Uh, And I'm not diagnosing anybody here. I'm just saying that, but boy, you know, as a therapist, you just choose not to work with people you have no ability to help. Well, the, um, the, the the tough clients are the ones that are right in the gray area of my saying yes or no. 
and then they have to pass a test. And that goes back to what you said, Greg. Will they own up and even go beyond owning up if they did something immoral and shameful, but not at the level of Donald Trump? I would say, are you ready to fess up and say, I did something immoral and shameful. I am ashamed of myself. The only cure is the truth and my owning what I did. And uh, that has happened to me. And I've had clients willing to do that. Yeah, you said something a moment ago I want to go back to because I thought it was just pointed to what we're seeing play out in the news today. And that is um, what's going on with the, the Mar-a-Lago um, subpoenas. And, and, and I, I guess I'll ask you point blank. Do you think that's going some I mean, this is leading to something in my mind i want to ask you a second but do you think that's going somewhere do you think that there is a smoking gun there so i don't understand the uh search we do not have access to the subpoena it can't be about just presidential records act violations that would be way overkill and a very bad mistake i've known merrick garland for as long as he was a young lawyer i cannot imagine and Lisa Monaco, his number two, I also know less well. So there's got to be something more. But with all due respect to my old friend, Merrick Garland, then Judge Garland, now Attorney General Garland, and he is an old friend, I am concerned about his communications non-policy. I know they can't say much. I know that's the tradition. But in this particular instance, he should explain something more than he has about why they are subpoenaing documents of a former president of the United States. This silence out of the Justice Department is like a religion. And all religions in both administrations, Justice Department isn't supposed to comment on what they do. And that's valid. But this is an exception. He's got to explain, we have a strong basis, and that's all I'll use is the word strong basis. I won't go further than that. I wouldn't do this unless I did. Something along those lines to tell the American people who are ready to listen, 40% of the country is a cult called Trump, and the rest of the country is 60%. Those 60% need to understand this subpoena, and I wish my old friend, Attorney General Garland, he's acting no different than any other attorney general. We don't comment is what they say. Uh, and I hate those words when it involves my client work. When lawyers tell me we don't comment, we're in litigation. And I always say, did your law school education kill your brain cells? Do you really think no comment <laughs> is helping our client? There's got to be something other than no comment. But with the attorney general, we need something more because of the circumstances of a search of a former president, even if his name is Trump. Yeah. And when I saw this story coming in and we were going to talk to you, I thought, what a, what a great situation, because this fits a blind spot. You know, nobody saw this coming, except the, the attorney general and some in a circle of people. And if, if, in fact, the White House didn't know, that's interesting. Um, but but it is classically a blind spot. Um, and if I were on the government side, I would have been on the phone to you saying, um, how should we be handling this? What should we be putting out there so that we don't, um, you know, shock you know, a half of the country if it is indeed half the country? Um, you know, how do we how do we nuance this so that it works the best? I would I would have thought that you would have had some good examples of how to get through that better. Well, for for, for my purposes, you're helping me through your podcast. 
I won't call Attorney General Garland or Deputy Attorney General Monaco. I wouldn't compromise them by even trying to call. But I can use, if you don't mind me using the word use, this podcast to give them advice. Uh, we love that. Yeah. Explain, the, explain the process, Mr. Attorney General. You don't have to comment on the specifics. We know you can't. The process is we obtained a warrant. A warrant requires a statement of facts that lead a federal judge to a decision there is probable cause. We stated those facts in a warrant. We gave the warrant to President Trump. That gives us a basis that there's a reason for doing something so unusual as this search. I'm not going to comment any further except one other sentence. President Trump has a right to publish that warrant. We don't. Boom, done. Yeah. And leave it at that. Now, if I'd said all that to the American people, the first thing that I guess I hit you, both of you, with is, wait a minute. You mean Trump can make the warrant public yep. and explain the whole thing? Yeah. Answer, yeah. Oh, so the attorney general has just told us that he has to state probable cause and get a federal judge to issue the warrant? I didn't know that. Well, Mr. Attorney General should have told us that. Now it's up to Mr. Trump. Why are you not publishing the subpoena for the documents? Because that will tell us a lot. And you're allowed to do that. The attorney general is not. See how I've just switched the tables here? Yeah, it takes the conspiracy theory out. Correct. That we're doing things or that the government's doing things behind a veil. So it's a, it's a general rule, if you don't mind my interruption about what I do for a living. My general rule, with one exception, is turn the lights on. Cockroaches have a great time in the kitchen when the lights are off. Where do they do? <laughs> Where do they run when you turn the lights on? They disappear. So in my profession, turning the lights on, being transparent as much as I can be, with one exception, if transparency, excuse me, if transparency is going to lead to my client going to jail, I will not recommend transparency. So in a criminal case, I consult with criminal lawyers whether what I say publicly is going to lead to my client going to jail. That's my only exception. But I'll still explain why I'm not able to comment and tried to say something other than no comment. Yeah, the brilliance of that is is, is the simplicity of it. Uh, because I'm you know, even playing that card out further. Um, I'm certain that he got, uh, that Mr. Trump and the attorneys got a receipt for everything that was taken, um, which means he could probably disclose some of that. So I think the, the beautiful aspect of what you said is the simplicity and the spin of, let's just tell people what they already know, but what they don't know is, and this, this is what's in, in this situation, puts it back to the other side, which is Correct. he could disclose what this is. Correct. And the, the way that neutralizes the, the enemy is powerful. That's, that's a brilliant strategy. I hope Attorney General listens to your podcast. <laughs> we can send it, right? <laughs> we can send it. Um, what, what are, I mean, going back to this, you know, being blindsided, what, what is the first thing? I mean, you talk about get out in front of it, tell the truth, you know, tell it off and tell it in your own words is, you know, how do you start the conversation with somebody who walks into you and says, this is going on in my life. I don't know what to do with it. You know, help, help me out of this. So it's really hard to give advice that's going to cause personal pain in a family. So if it involves personal behavior involving a man and a wife or companion uh, between people 
who are married of the same sex. It doesn't matter. Infidelity is a hard subject to give advice that you got to step up and own up. It's very, very hard. And I try to avoid those situations and recommend that they go to divorce lawyers or psychological counselors and not use me in a, in a personal situation. But in a corporate business world, even in the world of politics, when Michael Cohen and I first collaborated, he asked me if I could help him. And I said, the only way I can help you, Michael, is if you step up and fess up. For 10 years, you did Donald Trump's evil. Are you ready to admit that publicly and say you're sorry? And then I'm sorry is not enough. Now you have to tell the truth, including your own involvement in some of that evil. And his answer was 100%, that's what I want to do. And the next decision was, well, how do we do it? And we went to Congressman Cummings and was on international TV, the rest is history. So sometimes I'm telling a client to do something very hard, putting aside the personal indiscretion relationship issues, but something in politics or business where owning up and taking responsibility is really painful, but it's the solution to making a pivot and looking to the future and rebuilding your reputation. So you said something earlier I want to go back to because this affected my life. And um, I want to talk about shame because, again, as a therapist, the word shame um, freezes us. And in my situation, I, I remember getting terminated from a job um, earlier in life, and I was so ashamed about it. And I spent all of this time justifying why they were bad and why they shouldn't have done this and how I was um, a victim of these circumstances. And I would try to spin it anytime somebody would say, well, you know, what about your last job? And you, know, you have to tell them you got fired. And, and what I started to realize, and this is what I want your, your input on, is when I would just say, yeah, I, I deserve to be fired. I, I just completely was not a good employee. And, and it probably the best thing that ever happened to me was getting fired. Um, it eliminated the shame. It, it's completely neutralized my embarrassment about an event in my life moving forward. I'd love your thoughts about that. Well, far be it for me to debate with a professional in psychiatry or psychology. Ha, uh, huh, ha, huh, go ahead. I would take issue <laughs> with the need to use the word deserved. Mm. You can feel that you deserve something because you did something bad. That would be applicable if you really feel that way. But there's another way of looking at it that I learned from To Kill a Mockingbird, which I taught uh, now two generations of children because I have uh, younger sons as well as two older children and grandchildren. And that is what Atticus Finch told Scout when Scout was uh, bad-mouthing what she called the white trash kid who she had uh, had a fight with because he had said something negative about her father, Atticus Finch. And Atticus said, you know, Scout, And she interrupts him and says, sir, you can get along much better in life if you put yourself in somebody else's shoes and see the world through their eyes. I've taught my children, I underline that sentence in To Kill a Mockingbird. And if you do that, then whether you deserve to be fired almost doesn't matter, does it? It's whether the person perceives something in you, rightly or wrongly that led the person to fire you. If you simply say there is a perception issue, I created an impression, I may not have deserved it, 
but that's a reality in life. The perception of other people looking at you. Understand their perceptions, deal with them, don't argue with them, and you won't blame yourself as much. And so I do that with clients and with the media. How is the reporter perceiving you? Let's try to change the perception and don't argue or get angry about it. That's so powerful. And it, 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 that advice fits in just about every situation you can talk about. I know you've applied it to people who are in some real dire straits, you know, criminally and personally, but even you know, in our lives and with our families. And I talked to a guy this morning who called and said, I'm having trouble with my teenage son. And the, and, he, and I, I ended up saying almost exactly what you said, but it, it, so it's so um, interesting that you brought it up. He, he said, I, I don't know why my son does that. And I said, it's not important that you don't know why he does it. It's important you find out why he does that and see the world through his, his eyes. You know, don't tell me you can't understand, right? Follow? Perfect. My, my children don't need to hear that long speech. All I say is Atticus. <laughs> <laughs> it's a code word. It's the trigger word. <laughs> exactly. It means I'm going to my room now. That's, that's actually what that means. <laughs> Go think about this. Lenny, well, it, well, what advice would you give people who are listening to the show that have just been diagnosed with a horrible illness, a cancer, or have been terminated from their, their company? Or like, how, do you, how do you advise people on that? And Atticus isn't going to work on this one, but how do you advise people or what advice would you give for those people that are really trying to overcome things that hit them in their blind spot? So let me carve out... Uh, responding to life-threatening or life-termination diseases, because I can't. I, the pain would be too great when I am listening to somebody in that situation, much less, God forbid, I'm facing it. So I would carve that one out and just not have a good answer. But there's one chapter in the book I wrote, I'm not plugging the book, it was written a long time ago, called Crisis Tales, where I tell first-person accounts of each of these crises that uh, somehow I've been identified between Martha Stewart and the Penn State firing of Joe Paterno and lots of other, Dan Snyder and other. But the one is my favorite chapter in that book involved the former majority leader of the United States Senate named Trent Lott. And the reason I always pick this out as my favorite answer to your blind spot question is he was blinded by himself in telling a bad joke at a birthday party for Strom Thurmond, 100 years old. And the bad joke was a racist joke, even before the days of high sensitivity to vocabulary that we now face today. And I got a call from a friend of his because he was in a deep depression when he was ousted as majority leader of the Senate. But that wasn't the reason. The reason is that he told the joke and he seemed racist when he knew in his heart as a Mississippi Southern boy in a segregationist society, he had recovered and saw the evilness of segregation, and yet he would go to the rest of his life with that label. And so the friend of his who called me, former Congressman Jack Kemp, and of course famous uh, for his football playing, would you speak to my friend Trent Lott? I fear for him because he's in a deep depression. And I'm a liberal Democrat, and he thought I'd be hostile. So Senator Lott called me to make a long story short. I don't want to run out of time here, but it's a great chapter in the book. If you ever 
get a copy of the book. Reverend Jesse Jackson had called Senator Lott after he was ousted and was in this depression. And Senator Lott, through Congressman Secretary Quarterback Jack Kemp, asked me to give him advice. Should I take the call? Because I'm worried that Reverend Jackson will be exploiting me and put a press release out or do something to make my depression worse. And he was in a serious depression. So I called Jesse Jackson. I said, why did, who was an old friend of mine from civil rights days, why did you call Senator Lott, Jesse? He said, I called to minister to him, not for political reasons. It was a private call. How do you even know? So I said, Reverend, if you're willing to do that, this man needs your prayers, but I'd like to come to your office while you're on that telephone call. And he said over the phone, Lanny, I don't think you trust me. And I said, <laughs> Reverend, I don't. <laughs> but we're, we loved each other enough so we could say such things. I went over there and there I sat while Jesse Jackson with Senator Lott on the phone prayed for Senator Lott. Senator Lott called me after and with his wife on the phone said, Lanny, you made me whole. Oh. I now have an understanding that I can be forgiven, even though I didn't mean to be racist, I can be forgiven by Reverend Jackson, I can forgive myself. And to this day, Trent Lott and I have been close friends and his wife does say to me that I helped him a great deal come out of his depression by the simple act of having two polar opposites politically, one giving a prayer of forgiveness, the other accepting that prayer. That's crisis management in the best sense of the word. It brings wholeness to a deep hurt. And ultimately, when it's personal crisis, you can't do any better than that. What an amazing story. Yeah, you know, I, I would add that an interesting, you know, in First Kings, the, in the Old Testament, um, when Solomon was asked what he, what he would want, what he wished for, he asked for wisdom. And of all the things in the world you could wish for, Wisdom is probably one of the most powerful things you could ever ask for because so much good, you know, lives from wisdom. Um, and Lanny, that's kind of what we've been sitting at your feet here today, listening to you impart to us. And if people really listen to this and and understand how these these morals um, apply to so many different areas of our lives, not just helping a president or you know the Speaker of the House through difficult. Um, moments of their lives, but how this will get us through difficult seasons of our lives. That's just been a blessing. And I, I thank you. Well, you can see I'm very shy about talking about my stories. I could, as my children say, as they roll their eyes, dad, you're not going to tell another story, are you? <laughs> so I finally decided to write an autobiography only for my family and starting from my birth to my work for the Clintons and all the way through the Michael Cohen experience and Jesse Jackson and Trent Lott, et cetera. But it's more a personal story of my own mistakes, my own need for crisis management. So in writing this, uh, this book, uh, not yet published, uh, at least for my family, these kind of interviews allow me to remember, and I appreciate your invitation and hope I didn't go on too long, but I do enjoy talking about my real life stories. Although I have to give you the punchline of my oldest son, 
because uh, it's the best story that I have about my children. And uh, the night that Richard Nixon resigned uh, on national television, the same day that Donald Trump's raid occurred, by the way, coincidentally, on uh, August the 9th, it was 10 o'clock at night. And I, I've, I've told this story on TV and I've written this story in my book. I went home and both children, six and four, were sound asleep. And I picked them up, woke them up, put them in my back seat of my car. My wife thought I was nuts, but maybe I was. And she said, where are you going? I said, I'm taking them down to the White House. I want them to be at this moment in American history, an American president resigned. They're sound asleep. I go down to the White House. Then there were no barricades, no security. And as I pulled up in front of the White House, I woke them up and I realized, kids, look, there's no one here. Dad, we're asleep. Why, what do we care if there's no one here? Don't you realize these are six and four-year-old kids, right? I'm giving this eloquent speech. <laughs> Don't you realize that nobody is here is what this country is about? There are no tanks. There are no guns. There's no army. The most powerful man on the face of the earth was forced to resign because of the rule of law. And nobody's here. Mm. Don't you realize what this means? And I was so proud of my eloquence as a father that I turned around to see whether they recognized my brilliance <laughs> and they were both sound asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so in my now famous oldest son, Seth Davis, who you will see during March Madness on CBS, goes out of his way to tell anyone who asked me in front of him, Seth, did that really happen? Seth will say, Dad completely made that up. <laughs> well, a, a prophet is never respected in his hometown, right? <laughs> no, but I always say back, since I'm master of the soundbite, so-called, some people would say, you know what, Seth? How do you know you were asleep? Yeah, yeah <laughs> you got nothing. <laughs> That's fantastic. So thank you for letting me end with that story, but it's a great story. We really appreciate your time and your story. And I mean, everything you bring to this show is exactly why we created the show. And we are so grateful for your time and, and, and continue to do great work. We, we thank you. Thank you for your patience in getting me to find some time for this. I've enjoyed it greatly. So thank you. God bless you, sir. Bless you, Lenny. Bye now. Thank you. Take care. Wow. That was that was that was an amazing 45 minutes hour with Lanny Davis. I don't know. I, I I took away some things that I think maybe you didn't, but some of the stories, I mean the Jesse Jackson about that really hit me, right? Like the the, the times that we're in today versus the times that maybe were back then when there was humility and there was grace and there was a lot more that people offered than you're you're canceled. Um that was a great story. I mean, I I don't know, Greg. I mean, what were your three takeaways? Yeah, it's interesting because you you ping off of things that are different than I ping on, right? My radar mm -hmm. set up a little different. And um, what was just kind of unmistakably interesting to me, and a little bit of this is I apply, I apply you know, my background is a bit of a fixer too. So I was a SWAT team mm -hmm. hostage negotiator for years and and then as a therapist. So I, I kind of looked at what he was saying and run it through a prism of what I've experienced in life of fixing things and helping people through these blind spot moments in their lives where they got blindsided by something. Um, 
my first takeaway was we are on opposite ends of the political spectrum, right? Sure. I mean, yeah. and, and it's okay. And I think that was sort of one of one of my takeaways as I'm, as I'm listening to him, I'm thinking, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pal around with you, right? You're not, you're not kind of my person from what you would typically think. But then the more I listened to him, the more I thought, yeah, you are my kind of person. You, you are somebody I'm interested in knowing more. And, mm -hmm. and so, so that first, that, right, that first takeaway is if we could just put our stuff on hold for a few minutes and listen mm -hmm. to somebody, um, specifically his wisdom. He had an incredible gift of wisdom. Um, and, and I find that as such a premium these days that I, I like that. And it's a very attractive attribute in people that it, it goes so under-recognized and underutilized in life that if you find a wise person as, as a brother, as a mentor, as a fixer, as anybody in your life, man, lock into that person. Does that make sense to you? Oh, 100%. Because I've, you know, I've tapped into people that, you know, always no more than I do, which isn't, which it really isn't hard to find. Right. I feel like I've been through some <laughs> tremendous shit in my life, but yeah. you know, I, I lean on you at, at times for wisdom. And I think the, the stories that he shared, I mean, it, it, it was, he had so much wisdom. Um, and even his kids, you know, his kids would come to him and he had that Atticus Finch, um, storyline, which was hysterical. Um, and some of the people that he took on, I didn't believe in their, in their ethics per se, like the Michael Cohen deal, yeah. but how he approached it, how he approached it with Michael and what he made clear going into the relationship was really eye-opening. Um, so I, I, I think the guy's interesting. I would love to hang out with him and uh, I don't drink, but I'd love to have a cup of coffee with him, have dinner with him. I think his stories are remarkable and I think I can learn a lot from him. Yeah, so certainly. I love yeah. it. I, I love the show. And I and I am happy and, and proud to be that person for you. We still need to talk about some copay issues for you, but that, that we'll, bounce, we'll deal with that bounce. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do oh, a hundred times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I keep, I keep running yeah. your card and okay. it just keeps, okay. yeah, yeah. No, okay. no funds. It's so, okay. so my second takeaway, um, kind of our own blind spots again, you know, talking about that is being closed minded, um, and what drives that. And so what I really liked about him is how he starts to define what, what is it that we miss and causes us to miss things about people or misjudge people. Um, I find myself, um, I'm frequently wrong. And there was a time in my life where I don't think I could admit that. I don't, I, I really kind of struggled of my pride or my insecurity or whatever it was, you know, my, a bad run in with my oatmeal spoon when I was two years old or I got dropped on my head. I don't know, you know, whatever it is in our lives, you know, when, when we're kind of younger and, and we haven't reached that area of maturity where we can admit we're wrong. And I think one of the things that Landy does so well is he goes to people and says, stop covering up. Stop, stop making this about somebody else. This is about you. This is about a, a problem you have. This is about something you did. Let's own it. Let's move past it. Let's, let's, um, you know, kind of control that narrative and tell the truth and tell it often. And I think that is just so powerful. I don't think people understand how to apply that in their lives by letting go of their insecurities and their pridefulness and just saying, look, we're human, we're flawed. I mess up a lot. And when I do, I'm going to pick up on it and I'm going to move forward. Mm -hmm. My third takeaway out of the three is wisdom. And I, I just want to kind of talk about this for a second because, and, and it came up multiple times in our interview with Lanny. Um, wisdom 
is really the great unknown out here. And I want to I want to really encourage people who are listening to pursue wisdom. And I'll, I'll tell you the difference between wisdom and knowledge, uh, because that's what's going to make a difference when you are hit with a blind spot. When that happens to you, the stuff you don't see coming, wisdom will see you through. Knowledge is great. Intelligence is great. That's not wisdom. Wisdom's the key. Wisdom is the practical application of knowledge and life experience. Wisdom is that ability to discern relationships and the inner qualities of things. It's that ability to step back from yourself and and see it from 30,000 foot level instead of being in the forest and going, I'm never getting out of this. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. My life is over. Having wisdom lets you put this thing in perspective and helps you say, look, this is not good. This is not happy. This isn't a great moment in my life, but I have been through trials before in my life and I'm going to get through this one. I'm going to surround myself with the people that I need to for this. I'm going to get the support I need to in this, but I will survive this and I will be a better person because of this. That's where wisdom comes in. And Lanny really helped a lot of us understand how that gets placed in practical application. Dr. G, uh, insanely insightful as always. Uh, thanks for a great show. Uh, looking forward to many more. Special thanks to Lanny Davis for his participation in this episode. Patrick Lennon and Dr. Greg Sinamone would also like to thank Craig Kitchen for his assistance with this podcast. The Blind Spot is a production of ROI Media 360.